Hi, this is Center for Anxiety, and you're listening to A More Connected Life. In this podcast, we're here to talk about the very real struggles of mental disorders and how they can ultimately lead to greater insight, resilience, and connection. Based on current research, clinical wisdom, and first-person accounts, we will all learn how to live a more connected life. Hey everyone, and welcome to the first episode of A More Connected Life. Uh, I'm your host, Ethan, and with me today, I have our first guest on the show, Dr. David Rossmarin. Dr. Rossmarin is the founder of Center for Anxiety and assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and an expert in the intersections between spirituality and mental health disorders. Welcome to the show, Dr. Rossmarin. Hey, Ethan. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. Uh, So today... We're talking about anxiety and, you know, I thought maybe to start off, you know, with the prevalence of anxiety as a mental health disorder, can you speak on, you know, how you define anxiety uh, and, you know, what you think some common misconceptions to anxiety are? Sure. Anxiety is, uh, can only be understood if you contrast it with fear. Fear is something that we all experience um, at times, hopefully not too many times in life. When you have a real threat, a real, actual, tangible threat, and we have a fight or flight system that gets thrown into gear. Um, Many years ago, I remember leaving one of the offices in New York, and I walked out onto uh, onto the street, and I wasn't looking. I was looking at my phone. I was texting and walking, which was not a good idea. And I saw an MTA bus careening towards me at probably 40, 50 miles an hour. And I had this surge of adrenaline that went through my system, through my entire blood, right? My entire, uh, my entire body. Um, and um, that enabled me to get out of the way of the bus. I decided to fight and to flee and not fight the bus, which was probably a good idea. And um that, that helped me in my life. And for the, for the, it certainly helped me in that day. And the, uh, for, for at least 20, 30 minutes, maybe even an hour afterwards, I remember feeling really tense, really on edge. My stomach was in knots. And that was the residual experience of fear. Anxiety is that same experience without the bus. It's when our minds perceive something to be dangerous, but it's not. And we have that type of experience. And when you say the word dangerous, like in the case of you and that bus, you know, obviously that was a very dangerous experience, but sometimes uh, anxiety can kind of show up in situations we perceive as dangerous. And, and so, you know, is there a difference between uh, like a dangerous situation as opposed to, you know, what one perceives to be dangerous? That's exactly the difference. That's the difference between anxiety and fear. When we only perceive it to be dangerous, but in reality, it's not as dangerous, that would be anxiety if we have that response. And if it's something that actually we need to have that adrenaline pushing through our system to fight or flee for our survival or for a benefit, that would be called fear. And it's not a bad thing. So... Yeah, just kind of following up on, you know, that definition of anxiety, it's great that we have that now. Um, And, you know, a lot of times, 
you hear that, you know, people who are anxious uh, can oftentimes feel really isolated in that experience. Uh, and so I was just wondering, uh, with your experience as a psychotherapist, uh, why do you feel like anxiety is so isolating? I think when it comes to anxiety, and this is the same for other mental health concerns as well, one of the first things people will do is judge themselves for having those symptoms. So if someone's feeling anxious, one of the first reactions that many people will have in the Western world anyway is, why do I feel so anxious? What's wrong with me? And that is a very isolating way of thinking. It makes us feel different from everyone else. It makes us feel like something's wrong with us, that we, you know, uh, there's that judgment, that edge that we take towards ourselves. And um, I think it's, if one thing, if I've learned one thing from, uh, from seeing over a thousand patients come through a center for anxiety on a yearly basis these days, it's that life doesn't have to be that way. And that when people have anxiety or depression or other symptoms as well, they can learn to conjure up and to have a more connected experience through self-compassion, through understanding that they're not alone, that so many other people today have anxiety. Anxiety is completely ubiquitous. And learning to understand why we're anxious, what's going on for us, can actually be a very deepening and potentially positive experience. Got it. Yeah. Um, and, and how would you say people typically go about finding you know, self-compassion for themselves or finding um, other people that also go through similar kind of symptoms of anxiety? Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think people do. And I think that's one of the reasons that we live in such a anxious society today. Uh, the levels of anxiety today are through the roof. I mean, uh, before the 2020 COVID pandemic, the numbers were one fifth of adults in every given year having a full-blown anxiety disorder. Now it's, you know, at least 50% higher according to the CDC and other estimates. And I think part of the reason is because we're not giving ourselves that break. We're expecting ourselves to perform at, you know, firing on eight cylinders 100% of the time. And that's just not realistic. Right. And, you know, you mentioned the COVID pandemic and, you know, how things have kind of changed from that pandemic. You know, would you say that with people having to take social distancing measures and, and dealing with a wide variety of stressors that have come from the pandemic that, you know, that's like a, a key kind of factor in terms of the increase in anxiety rates? I think a number of factors over the last year, year and a half have increased levels of mental distress, you know, including social isolation, as, as you mentioned. Primarily, though, I think that uh, one of the key factors is that we're still demanding a lot of ourselves. We're still demanding and expecting ourselves to be performing at, at a level of peak, as opposed to understanding that things have been pretty tough for the last little while and giving ourselves, really giving ourselves that permission, that time to recoup, to regroup, to come up with a plan moving forward. Yeah. And, you know, I think that, uh, I think we would both agree that, you know, everybody at some point in time feels like they're not performing at their peak or they're, they're going through something, 
And, you know, what would you say, you know, is the difference between uh, someone that has anxiety who goes through that versus someone who, you know, is able to kind of cope and, and pick themselves back up in a rough patch? Well, um, being able to pick ourselves up during a rough patch is often a function of giving ourselves permission to be in the rough patch in the first place. And um, all human beings hit roadblocks at some point, speed bumps for sure, roadblocks as well, and sometimes even more significant barriers which are in our way. And I, you know, we live in a very blessed age where we have the, you know, unfettered access to information by smartphones and blazing fast Wi-Fi all over the place. And uh, yeah, we have medical technologies and other uh, amazing advances that have created this sense that everything should always go well. That's not life. There are setbacks. There are challenges. There are going to be pitfalls and vicissitudes of life. And, you know, one of the first lessons, I think, in living a connected life is to recognize that and to learn to accept it and not to fight against it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in terms of how psychotherapists or, or even just the public in general, like what are some steps that, you know, you feel like need to be changed within society in terms of connecting people more and, and encouraging people to, to have more self-compassion? You've um, mentioned a couple of times the social aspects of it, and I think you're right. I, I do think we live in a very isolated uh, society where we are primarily focused on productivity as opposed to connection and relationships, interpersonal connection. And that's definitely one of the one of the biggest factors. Years ago, one of the national groups that studies college mental health came up with a statistic that was really incredible to me, that more than 60% of college students felt, quote unquote, very lonely while in college. I always found that to be very strange um, because college is supposed to be the most connected time of a person's life. You're in a dorm, you have tons of friends all around. You never take a class alone. There's always someone there, but people feel very lonely. Top anchor on a four-point scale of how lonely, a bottom anchor, I should say, on a four-point scale of how lonely people are. You know, that indicates to me that it's not only about proximity, how close you are to people. It's also about a way of approaching life that are our relationships important or are we really just focused on achieving things? Right. Uh, and, and would you say, I mean, you mentioned technology and other kind of uh, aspects that, that cause us to have an unrealistic standard of ourselves. And would you say that college students, you know, especially are, are more impressionable on the by these factors or? Probably. I mean, you know, college mental health has, has definitely plummeted to new, new lows in the last little while. And in part, because a lot of college students were affected by it, especially those starting college and those graduating. But, um, you know, I do think that our approach to life, uh, being one of, Hey, I want to move as far ahead as I can, as opposed to developing relationships, which are as close as they can be that definitely has uh, had a, a big impact on our mental health. Yeah. And, and when would you say this mindset of, of prioritizing achievement over connection kind of took place or, or became prevalent? Is that something that, 
that we've always had as a society? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not a historian. I'm not, I'm not sure. I do think that um, we have seen a shift to more ch towards much more of an individualistic culture. And um, uh, over the last, uh, certainly the last 50 years in American society, and probably over the last 20 years, probably even over the last 10 years in some ways, you know, but, but the good news here is that people who, and here's the really good news. Sometimes people going through emotional distress, clinical emotional distress, that they have to come in for psychotherapy for a period of time. They have to, you know, engage in sessions and they have to deal with their emotions and take inventory. And out of the process of treatment, in addition to learning certain skills to be able to manage their symptoms better, there's a recalibration that can take place where people say, you know what, I want to have better relationships going forward. And yes, I want to be productive, but I also want to be more self-compassionate. And I have a new meaning in life in some ways, and I need to focus on that as well. And I think sometimes that's the, the pieces of mental health that we, we don't focus on. We don't really notice it, but it's something that's almost uncanny. A lot of patients are in some ways better off after treatment than had they not had symptoms in the first place. Right. And, and would you say this recalibration is something that typically only happens, you know, within the context of psychotherapy? Are there other ways to, to maybe get that recalibration? It's a good question. I don't think people have to go through psychotherapy to, you know, have a positive outcome from a, a mental distress experience. Um, sometimes people can, can get there on their own. However, I will say this, one piece, no matter what type of psychotherapy you're receiving, if somebody goes to a clinician for a mental health concern, they're going to start by acknowledging that they have a concern and that they are in need of help. In of itself, that is a critical step that acknowledging that vulnerability, speaking about it with another human being, recounting what the symptoms are, having a frank conversation about what one's needs are, all of those are critical ingredients, I think, to the process of growth and thriving and flourishing. Could one get that without treatment? Sure, but it's those processes nevertheless need to be intact. Right. Right. And I know that, you know, to this point, we've spoken about um, both the self-compassion piece as well as, you know, the piece on social isolation. So uh, if you could maybe help kind of clarify, you know, once someone has self-compassion for themselves, um, how does that connect to, you know, actually connecting with other people? Sure. It's a great question. I think the answer is, is, a, is a pretty easy link. If we don't have compassion for ourselves, it's very difficult to hang out with other people. Let's be real. When we hang out with other people, we put on a show. You're not going to wear your problems on your sleeve. I mean, maybe with one or two friends or maybe with people who you're really close with, which is important, by the way, extremely important. But by and large, when we go out with a group of friends, it's not going to be you know, a pity party for me which means that if I'm not having self-compassion, it's gonna be very hard for me to hang out with a bunch of people who are doing the exact same. Because if I can't accept my own limitations, how can I look at a, a whole group of people who at least on the surface seem to be doing extremely well? It's called social comparison where I'm comparing myself to other people. If I don't have self-compassion, extremely challenging to 
to deal with social comparisons. Right. And if you did have self-compassion, what does that kind of social dynamic look like? You know, if everybody has self-compassion. Sure. Well, then it's walking in and saying, hey, you know what? I'm having a bad week or I'm having a bad month or, you know, this my life sucks, but that doesn't mean that I can't have friends. That doesn't mean that I can't connect to people who are either stronger or weaker or whatever. People are struggling in their own way. And I'm not going to judge myself because my friend's doing better or worse than I am. It's just, we're just here to connect. We're not here to compare. Right. And, and that actually makes me think of, you know, the ideas, you know, of self-compassion, like you said, but also vulnerability um, and, and being willing to share you know, things that aren't going well in your life. Would you say that those two are, are the same thing or, or what's the difference between those two? They're related. I don't know if they're the exact same. You know, uh, I, I do think that it's critically important for all human beings to have at least one other person that they can speak to about whatever is going on, no matter how difficult it is. We all need to feel accepted by at least one other person on earth, fully accepted by at least one other person on earth. Like that's a very critical human need. Um, especially today. Having self-compassion, though, is just a, you know, that's a lower bar. Uh, that's having an understanding that whatever we're going through doesn't mean that we're a broken person. It means that we're a, a great person who's struggling. Right. Um, and kind of just tying all this together, like, would you be willing to to share, you know, some sort of example where we can kind of see you know, transformation from, from someone who, who was struggling with anxiety to, to someone um, who was able to have self-compassion and connect more with others. Sure. I've seen this in many patients. You know, I'm just thinking of one who I was in touch with recently who was uh, in her mid-20s and, and, and uh, single and uh, was really struggling with very significant obsessive compulsive disorder. And she came into my office and she shared with me very slowly her symptoms. It took her probably the better part of six or seven sessions to just tell me what was going on for her. And I, I spoke with her about it and I asked her how many other people knew about it. And she said, no one, not her parents, siblings, not her best friend on earth. She had been hiding this. And I asked her, when did this start? She said, 16, 15, 16. So for 10 years, not only had she been dealing with her symptoms, she had been dealing with this deep, dark, secret of struggle and having to put on a show of being perfect as well while being struggling while struggling and while not having anybody to go to i i pointed out to her that it, it took incredible human strength for her to do that which i think she appreciated and i also encouraged her to have a couple of conversations with with people trusted individuals not you know not in public because for her, she was extremely ashamed of it, um, about her concerns and to, to let other people in. She did, and it was incredibly transformative for her, incredibly. Right. And in terms of this feeling of putting on a show, I think we touched, touched on it earlier, but you know, I was just curious, um, would you say this is something that, that is kind of universal across different cultures? Does culture have anything to play in with this? Culture can definitely have something to do with it. There are certain cultures where shame and um, stigma are even are even higher. American culture has classically been fairly high in terms of stigma and shame, especially when it comes to mental distress. That has decreased substantially over the last, 
I would say over the last year, especially with, with the, the COVID pandemic. But um, there still are certain many cultures that come to mind, you know, that uh, where, where this is, it, it is, it is more. Right. And, and so I guess, you know, thinking about all this, I'm kind of wondering what, what's next? Like, what, what do we need to do as a society to, to change this underlying idea of, you know, achievement over, you know, self-compassion and trying to encourage ourselves to be more connected with others? Well, I'll tell you, Ethan, you know, what, one of the things um, in terms of what we need to do, I'll tell you what is happening. As more people become anxious and depressed and struggle with substance abuse and other aspects of mental health, I do see this happening. I'm, I'm not even going to explain the mechanism as opposed to just say that I, I do see people learning to become more compassionate, reaching out to others, and also having imbuing their lives with a greater sense of meaning and mission and purpose, which is something we didn't even speak about, but it's another facet of connection um, that can occur. The reason why is because it's just so distressing to live an isolated, alone existence without having those aspects of connection in our lives. Right. Okay. And in terms of, I guess... You know, obviously you mentioned psychotherapy can be, can be one way to, to help ourselves, you know, reach self-compassion and eventually connect with others. What are other ways to kind of do that? Sure. Well, number one is respecting our limitations. The average human being needs between seven and nine hours of sleep per night, seven to nine hours of sleep. That's a third of your day on average. Um, the average American does not get even six and a half. And this is um, an aspect that I myself had struggled with over the years until a couple of years ago, I realized that my performance is never gonna be optimal unless I get enough sleep. And now that number's north of seven on average. For the last several years, it has been. So it sounds like you're saying that with this culture that that uh pushes us to achieve you know at the cost of our own self-compassion and social uh connection actually sounds like if we take those things in stock then we actually are able to achieve more sounds like what you're saying correct correct the irony is we can achieve more although i'm not sure that that's the purpose i think the purpose is actually to connect more and to live a more connected and thriving existence however I actually think we can achieve more if we treat ourselves uh, appropriately. Another thing is skipping breakfast. You know, the body needs breakfast. You need three, 400 calories in the morning to get going. Combination of carbon, carbohydrates and protein and that's and fiber. And that's what, that's what a human being needs. And then to refuel every three to four hours. Most nutritionists today will say have eat a little bit of carbs, a little bit of protein every three to four hours during the day. Many people skip breakfast, have a huge lunch, skip any afternoon snacks, have a huge dinner. And um, it's not optimal nutrition. Yeah. Uh, and it sounds like, you know, what we're discussing now is, you know, how mental and physical health can be extremely tied uh, before we're talking about self-compassion and social isolation. But, but now we're talking about just basic needs of sleep and food. And so in that sense, it sounds like, you know, what you're saying is, Aside from seeing psychotherapy, psychotherapists, excuse me, these changes to help us feel more uh, connected, maybe more self-compassionate can come from 
things as basic as sleeping more or eating more. A hundred percent. And the reason why is because if we can respect our limits and our needs for those things and actually attend to them, that's an aspect of having a better relationship and more, more connection with ourselves. Right. Okay. I think that you bring up a really important point, you know, about changing the mindset, you know, not only within ourselves, but, but also trying to shift this greater idea within society of, of prioritizing achievement over our own well-being. And so, yeah, I just want to say thank you for your time, Dr. Rossmarin. Is there anything else you'd like to say or want to shout out before we wrap this up? No, thanks so much, Ethan, for, for doing this podcast and for having me on the show. I'm really honored to be here as a, as a first guest. Great. Thank you. Thanks for being here. And uh, yeah, thanks everyone for listening and we will see you all next time. Thanks for listening to A More Connected Life. Visit centerforanxiety.org for more information about everything we talked about today and to connect with us. Tune in next time as we discuss more ways to live a more connected life.